0: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. Today is Monday, March 21st, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norden, here by myself this week because we're about to air my interview with Dave Johnson of Stanford University. Before we do that, today's episode is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's everyday handkerchief is a high performance daily use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited-edition colors at Valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A. A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome to the planet today here on tpt we cover the latest in climate change wildlife conservation renewable energy and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way monday and friday this show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics tpt has a little bit for everyone so we're happy to have you as a listener and with that we're gonna get right into the interview Today on TPT, we are joined by Dave Johnson. Dave is a lawyer, teacher, and writer who currently teaches at Stanford Law School and the Platner Institute of Design at Stanford. Dave's currently writing a book titled Climate Activism by Design, which discusses citizen activists responding to corporate and government inaction through a design lens. Dave Johnson, welcome to The Planet Today. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. Glad to be here.
1: So how did you first get your start in environmentalism? I think the answer to that question goes pretty far back. I got into scuba diving kind of haphazardly in high school, did a bunch of diving. And because of that in college, I did two different semesters in marine biology, offshore using diving as part of the course, one in Catalina and another in Bermuda, working for the Bermuda government uh, doing research. And so when you, you know, as any scuba diver will tell you, once you get underwater for an extended period of time and you look around and you see the world that's there, it's hard not to really find affinity with the natural world. That's not to say you have to be a scuba diver. I, you know, plenty of people ski and hike and find the same kind of attachment, uh, the same kind of affinity uh, in other environments. But for me, that's how it happened. And, I actually went to law school to study environmental law, but wasn't able to find work uh, when I got out of law school to do it. So I, I did more traditional legal work. Went back to school at Stanford with the express intention of doing a second degree specifically on environmental law, which I did. Got more and more interested in environmental law, climate change. Uh, did a little bit of consulting for Al Gore's nonprofit and. I also became interested in design with respect to law and policy, and it seemed like a pretty natural fit to think about design as applied to environmental law and policy, specifically, uh, you know, treaty design. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. So when you say treaty
0: design, were you working in the early stages of that or kind of ironing out from a legal standpoint?
1: Well, I'm I'm thinking and, and writing about it now from a theoretical standpoint. Uh, Nobody has yet invited me to actually put hands on to the design of a treaty. So what I'm writing about in part is an examination of prior climate change treaties all the way back to the Montreal Ozone uh, Protocol, which worked very, very well in part because of its design. The Kyoto Accords, which did not work well at all, also because of their design. And so I'm trying to bring the design theory to the surface so that people who do actually sit down and write uh, treaties or accords for environmental, including climate change, but not limited to that, um, can hopefully think about that work from a uh, designer's perspective. Sounds really cool, and I'm sure being
0: able to look back and see what works well and what doesn't, it kind of gives you a a unique perspective when hearing about ongoing environmental negotiations. I mean, we just had COP26 a couple Mm -hmm. months ago, Mm -hmm. so I'm sure looking at that through a design lens while it's actually going on is a really interesting perspective you have.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, COP26 was, by and large, a disappointment, but it kind of depends on which lens you look at it. Uh, At least they have one. At least there are people... Uh, actively discussing the issues. At least there are activists on site pushing the dialogue, uh, uh, laying out their narrative. But unfortunately, as you alluded to earlier, the obstacles to real uh, change, and real moves to address the problem globally in climate change, the obstacle is still government and corporations. And the two are increasingly, inextricably intertwined (laughs) in a way that any activist effort, in my view, uh, has to be highly organized Mm -hmm. and it has to address the obstacles to climate change. And that is political uh, ability to make law and corporate desire to make change in their own policies. So getting any given company, uh, I hate to pick on them because I mentioned Coca-Cola so often, so I'll pick on PepsiCo, (laughs) doesn't really matter. Any company that is spewing out single-use plastics, for example, and not using 100% uh, biodegradable plant-based plastics or recycled plastics, but instead using virgin material because it's Mm -hmm. cheaper, for yeah. single-use plastics and not spending a penny with respect to the product waste that they're dumping on the planet as a garbage can, uh, they need to be held to account. Mm-hmm. They need to be held. To, corporations need to be held to account for that sort of activity, but in a way that's different than trying to hold governments to account.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny that you brought up activism and activists at COP26 because. I agree with you. I thought COP26 as a whole was very underwhelming and in times disappointing. But something that really s- stuck out to me was just how many people my age and even younger were there and fired up to be a part of this greater movement and to say, we're not going to be okay with people just giving us the bare minimum, greenwashing yeah. their policies. Yeah, We want to see real change. And that yeah. to me is something that's very exciting as someone in that generation.
1: Yeah, you know, that's what honestly motivated me Uh, i'm of the age where i'm not likely to suffer the most severe impacts of climate change generations behind me will but i am of the age where i've got 30 40 years of accumulated experience and knowledge in several fields and i feel an obligation to write it down as best as i can and hand it down and hope that it can contribute in some small way to the generations behind me who are, in fact, going to need to be activists about this. You know, in Mm -hmm. academia, and maybe other areas, but where I learned it was in academia, we talk about something called the intergenerational handoff. It's the obligation of stewardship of each generation to do the best job possible, handing to the following generations the Advances in information, in analysis, in cultural norms, even legal norms, even laws that should make life for everybody better from generation mm-hmm. to generation to generation. And it's no secret that over the last 30, 40 years, the intergenerational handoff has, as basically <laughs> to use a football metaphor, since we're just <laughs> off the Super Bowl, has been a fake handoff. Yep. <laughs> the generations have faked it, and then they've taken the ball back, and they've held on to it themselves. And that, in part, explains oligarchy, and it explains increased wealth gaps and increased income inequality. And from that, all measure of social ills, not just environmental. And, you know, it really pains me to have lived through that period and watched it happen watched 40 years of intentional degradation of the middle class in the united states Mm -hmm. and at least feel powerless to do anything about it in fact one of the chapters in my book addresses specifically early on this notion that we all feel powerless in the face of climate change because the issues are so big the solutions are so big what can i as an individual do about it it's overwhelming And it's depressing, if not angering. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what I want to do is reframe, one of our negotiation and design terms, reframe the problem in a way that allows people to see a path forward as individuals to align themselves with other like-minded individuals and gather power in the same way that two people operate as co-founders in a startup. It's, it's surprisingly rare, certainly mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley, to see companies with a solo founder. They're almost always co-founders early on. And I'd like to see organization, thoughtful organization and strategic action by activists, even at the very, very smallest level, and then develop a model for those activists to network with one another, operate in a loose but aligned association, and scale. Scale their power. Sounds a lot more efficient than a lot of the organizational uh, strategies we've seen so far. Yeah, and I've looked at some of those. <laughs> I, you know, One that I particularly like to look at and think about is the battle in Seattle with the uh, protests against the WTO. There's a lot of lessons to be learned from that event, good mm-hmm. and bad. But I've come to the conclusion, based on my experience, you know, most of my experience, my professional experience, is a deep immersion in the corporate milieu. you know, I lived it and almost all of us at some point are going to work for a corporation, big or small. And I don't mm-hmm. mean to pick on specific corporations or specific size corporations. It's at this level of conversation, I'm talking about the entity that is a corporation that allows what I call dirty capitalism to flourish in a way that allows them to get away with environmental damage without carrying the cost on their books. Right. And we all hear often that, you know, a lot of these calls for uh, broad, deep systemic change. I get it. And I feel that. I desire it. I wish for it. But we're not going to get broad systemic change just by wishing for it or by pointing out in a very loud voice that it's wrong, morally, economically, etc. We may get to that place, but there are several stepping stones we have to cover. One of which is solving for climate change within the system as it exists now. Because we're not going to get the Walmarts and Exxons of the world to just say, hey, oh, you're right, we're going to put... 18, 20, 50, 100 billion dollars on our books as costs to improve our environmental behavior, unless somebody makes them do it. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's going to be activists in the, pop, in the general population around the world who make them do it.
0: Yeah, I, I think something like that is super important to point out because you're right it's not just going to happen overnight and it's not going to happen by us just saying, Hey, look at all of these people and corporations that are doing X, Y, Z. It takes yeah. a lot, but calling it out is a really important. First absolutely step. is. So it absolutely is. I'm, I'm very inspired by that, but those next steps are crucial and it seems like sometimes we're a little bit, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say we're resting on our laurels, but sometimes it seems like activists are the first to say, hey, look at all these corporations, let's stop buying from them. And then we get distracted by another corporation doing the same thing, and we almost kind of forget about those others. And it's this vicious cycle where we're stuck in this system, so it's hard to enact real change because of the way the system works. Yeah,
1: you know, it's a good point. And the politics in the U.S. over the last 10 years or so, including the injection of social media and the speed with which news cycles spin, has mm-hmm. actually made it more difficult to stick with a particular issue and ha- develop energy around a particular issue and have it continue to have news coverage for days or weeks at a time. And that's why designing events in a way to make that happen is important. It's the, it's the intention of many of the bad actors out there to have us memory hole stuff that... Is a problem for them, and so they just keep mm-hmm. throwing, you know, new shiny objects into the news cycle in order to distract the populace, and and that's part of the issue that we have to overcome. We have to overcome the sort of the hot take meme uh, tendency, the culture of you know really near term, almost gotcha expressions of intent or accusation Mm -hmm. i'm all for going on twitter and reading about the day's news and the fact that mazar's uh trump's accounting firm is just now taking his legs out from underneath him Mm -hmm. and that's good progress but what happens is the each of these things becomes a thing to its unto itself so much so that we lose sight of the bigger picture uh and what happens is what Actually, what we've seen in the U.S. for the last at least four years, which is a complete and utter failure of American citizens to get on their feet, strap on their boots, put on their coats and go out in the streets and stand there in the thousands or tens of thousands at a Capitol building in any state or town uh, or much less in Washington, D.C., and say, you have to listen to us. Mm -hmm. That has not happened because we're all, like you say, sort of bought into the speed. It's almost a spin cycle, if you will, of information that is so dizzying that we lose our bearings altogether about what to do.
0: Yeah, and especially with environmental topics because not as many people are well-versed in something that I think a lot of us really do care about at our core. So. I guess that kind of leads me into my next question for you. Sure. What's your take on why things seem to be getting worse despite climate change being you know, in public conversation for quite a while now? Like, are they actually getting worse or is it just bad messaging and bad branding?
1: Oh, they're actually getting worse. I, I think the, the, there's some very simple science that, that demonstrates that and it comes out fairly regularly. One is the Keeling curve of increased carbon dioxide density in the atmosphere year after year after year. One that uh, we see constantly is the continuation of the degradation of the ice in the Arctic, Mm -hmm. Uh, the increase in uh, losses of uh, ice in the Antarctic that gets set off as icebergs into the open ocean. The one that, that troubles me the most candidly is uh, the increasing temperatures in the tundra uh, and the taiga, but mostly the tundra where methane is frozen in the soil. As those temperatures rise, methane is released. And so that becomes a, a you know, uh, it's hard to say it, a positive feedback loop because it's actually a negative thing when you have a positive feedback loop in this instance where. The warmer it gets, the more methane is released. The methane is such a uh, powerful greenhouse gas that it increases the temperature and you get this positive feedback loop that, that actually increases the rate of melting of the tundra and the release of, meth- of methane. And at some point we're gonna get methane burps out of lakes and perhaps even oceans. So yeah, it's getting worse. And uh, the I think the answer to your other the other part of your question Which is why isn't anything happening about it? Is it kind of goes back to the worse it seems to get, the more individuals are naturally, it's human nature, forced to feel like there's nothing I can do. I'm so small, I'm so powerless. Sure, I'll recycle my stuff and I'll compost at my house. And if I can, I'll get an electric car. And then they, they, people feel like, you know, I got to go into defensive mode. I got to protect my family. I'm going to do something so I don't feel like a, like a a contributor, but Mm -hmm. there's nothing that I can do to force change at the global level of power, raw capital P power, which is where the change has to happen. You know, most of us realize that we have a great deal of technology in place, or currently being developed, that we can take on a lot of these issues in carbon capture, et cetera, but funding those technologies, bringing them to the surface, buying them and applying them, whether or not they create quote unquote profit in the uh, economy. You know, we just had, (laughs) it's hard to believe, I'm I'm surprised I'm saying this, but we just had in California three weeks ago, a very close call where the, the, state legislature wanted to basically disincentivize people from getting solar power on their roofs. Yeah. They wanted to increase the cost of accessing the grid. If you have solar panels and decrease the amount of money you get for putting your solar power into the grid. And the idea was pushed by PG and E, which is our local power company, um, and they have their arguments, but the big picture is we can't afford to be disincentivizing people uh, paying for and using solar power. So, the, the you know, it's a matter of economic, it's a matter of policy, but it's ultimately a, a matter of uh, large, powerful uh governments and large powerful corporations that are telling those governments what they want mm-hmm. and usually not always but usually prevailing. Yeah, it's a really really interesting point and I, I definitely agree with a lot of your sentiment there.
0: And I want to kind of you, you've been alluding to something about activism and about more of us getting involved. So I guess my, my next question is more about your book, which as we mentioned is going to be called Climate Activism by Design. Is the goal of the book
1: to inspire every reader to become a climate activist? Ideally, every reader would increase their activism, but I have to understand, we have to be realistic that not every reader can or will be in a position to become an activist. But the goal of the book is to give the reader enough information and perhaps inspiration that if they choose and they can become activists, it gives them a model, a pathway forward uh, to Take the next step. It's a difficult bridge, but it's a fairly short bridge to go from whatever it is I do around my house or at work by way of environmental uh, knowledge, environmental actions, you know, sustainability, uh, whether it's in my shopping or my driving or recycling, etc. It's a fairly small but difficult step to then say, Again, I go to the co-founder concept, I'm going to find a friend or uh, a person who I don't know, uh, but I might meet at a uh, environmental group who shares a passion for whatever issue it might be. We're seeing a lot, for example, local activity that I really like to see of even high school uh, students taking on stores that are still using plastic bags. Now, California Mm -hmm. has outlawed plastic grocery bags to their credit uh, with some exceptions, but there are a lot of states that still use them. And they're just bad for the environment six ways till Tuesday and a hundred ways if they ever migrate into the oceans. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't take a whole lot for a couple of high school students, whether they're doing it for a class or whether they're doing it on their own, to spin up enough energy and enough people, perhaps buy a list of signatures on a petition, that they can go bring pressure to bear on stores that are still selling plastic bags and try and get them to change. If they do it in a careful, strategic way, I think it's surprisingly easy. The leverage with companies, businesses, for-profit businesses, Which is the bulk of the people that the entities that we need to affect. The leverage comes simply from addressing their bottom line. So, if it's a boycott, Mm -hmm. if it's uh, tarnishing their brand, if it's a TikTok video that shows plastic bags blowing around the parking lot at a Safeway one day and it goes viral, even in just Mm -hmm. the town that I live in, and it goes viral on Nextdoor or something wow, if you're the manager of that Safeway, you're going to do something about it because that's going to make people want to go down the street to Whole Foods or Kroger's. And those, those sort, of, sort of things are out there to be done and not too difficult to do. But what I think and what I've seen is when a small group of people actually accomplish something small but meaningful like that, And they exercise their power and they realize that they can effect some small change, but some positive change, it starts to take away the feeling of powerlessness that we have. And once you take away that feeling of powerlessness, it's replaced by an increasing feeling of agency and power. And so that's the tipping point that I'm trying to address in part of the book that I'm trying to address in the mind of the reader. It's not hard to take that first step, but you have to know, you have to have an idea about how to do it and maybe be a little bit motivated. And then from that that first step, the next steps uh, become a little bit more doable. Less daunting. Less daunting. Yeah, yeah that's a great phrase. Yeah. Less daunting.
0: Yeah, it's funny because there are so many... I I keep bringing it back to environmental causes because that's something very close to me and something that I speak to a lot of my friends and colleagues about, but Mm -hmm. there are so many things that people just say, oh, I could never do that. I would have no idea of how to start. Mm -hmm. And it seems like just based on that pitch you gave me, your book is kind of giving people the playbook to say, if you care about this, which look, if you're listening to this, obviously we all care about this topic. Here's what you can do and here's how you can do it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And You know, I'm not going to be able in the book to write down all the different things you can do. I'm sure I'll put an appendix in there with a lot of, uh, you know, 100 ideas. But the things that need to happen are everywhere. This is where the design thinking piece comes in. We need to remove some of the obstacles that day-to-day life kind of puts in front of our eyes and open our awareness to what's going on around us. And you start to see... Things like the plastic bag issue or the toxic waste issue that arises when hopefully gasoline stations start closing down. Every gasoline station is its own mini toxic waste site, right? There's leakage Mm -hmm. from those tanks of gasoline and oil into the soil. And when those stations close down over the next five ten years, they're supposed to get cleaned up in an appropriate way and oftentimes they don't. That's going to that's gonna start happening more and more and more as we shift over to electric mm-hmm. and that's good, but we also need to be careful about letting the companies who are abandoning these stations, not just leave that pile, literally pile of garbage in our neighborhood. They have to come mm-hmm. get it and clean it up. So there's there's issues like that that are, are existing now or going to come to the surface uh, across the coming years there's no shortage. Absolutely no shortage of things to do. My approach in the book is not to list them all and say this is how you do it. My approach is to say go find an issue. Look for an issue. Here's how we as designers look at problems and here how we as designers approach finding solutions to problems. We do it almost always in a collaborative creative team because that's the way that works best. It's just how it is, and it also is more fun to do it that way. But it's more productive to do it that way than to try and do, to try and lift, you know, the the heavy box solo. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's a part, partly motivational and partly methodological. Two big kind of clumsy words. What I would call <laughs> two dollar Harvard words. <laughs> and th- that's what it is. So in a way, yeah, I'm trying to help people. Uh, see a way forward to become activists. And you know, those people I've described, even the two high school students doing plastic bags at the Safeway, and I don't mean to pick on Safeway here, it just happens we have one in town. They're very much, they're just as much an activist as Greta Thunberg. Greta's done amazing things. But an activist is an activist is an activist, whether you become famous at it or not. And I actually have an mm-hmm. entire chapter in the book about a few famous activists, but also a whole bunch of activists who no one would have heard of, you know, but for having their story told, but for the fact that what they did caused some change, even though they weren't really out there intending to cause the change that followed. So in a way, we have to just go be activists and hope that if we do it en masse, that Enough of what we do causes change, even if it's somebody on our team and not us. You know, uh, again, the the football mm-hmm. analogy is, you know, the whole team scores, even if just one person runs it in, runs the ball into the end zone. The whole team gets the yeah. benefit of that touchdown, and that's sort of the same way I think that uh, activism is going to operate.
0: Yeah. And I
1: think we're all playing for the same team here, yeah. looking for
0: that same large, sometimes difficult to picture accomplishing, but that same goal. And that's, you know, a better, more inhabitable world for the generations after us. Yeah. Yeah. Dave, we finish off every interview with three
1: fun, rapid fire okay. questions. Ready? To I, go? I promise the audience that I have not heard what these questions are. So uh, <laughs> yes, I'm ready to go. All right. Number one, what is your favorite animal? Dolphin. Nice. Number two, what is something you do to be more sustainable in your own life? Two things. I've become a whole lot more aggressive about composting and careful about composting. We have a benefit in California, or at least in my town, of uh, a really good pickup uh, for composting. But the other one, and this may sound like a plug is I shifted to a company called Zero that does grocery preparation and delivery with no plastics. Oh, cool. Everything everything that you buy, if at all possible, is in a reusable container, usually glass jars. And uh, you either pick it up at their store or they bring it to your house either way pasta, cereal, all kinds of staples that you think of, including things like milk and juice, all in glass that is reusable. And then you finish it off, you put it in a the bag, they come pick it up, they bring you the, the the load next week. There's more than one company out there that's doing it, I'm sure, the company I've used is Zero. I have to tell you, it, my wife discovered it, but once I realized just how much better I felt by making that decision, even to pay a few dollars more a week, how much better I felt knowing that these containers were gonna go back, be cleaned and sanitized and reused. It was, it was really an eye-opener, mm-hmm. it, it, it really was. It was, it was uh, akin to the idea of doing one small thing that makes all of a sudden makes you realize you're not as powerless as you might think. That's
0: awesome. All right. And last question. What is one environmental topic you think my
1: listeners should be more aware of after hearing from you today? Be mindful that although we're shifting to electrical ve- vehicles, and we're doing so quickly, it appears, at least in the US. Be mindful of two things. One, the energy still has to come from somewhere. And so the electrical energy has to be generated either by burning fossil fuels, including coal at the local power plant, or from sustainable sources like wind, uh, ocean, geothermal, et cetera. So if you're thinking about buying electric, by all means, but keep an eye for where the energy actually comes from so that it's not just a what they call a tailpipe to smokestack problem. Mm-hmm. And secondly, be mindful that with electric vehicles, there's an enormous amount of toxic stuff in batteries and other components of an electrical vehicle. So the waste that comes from an electrical vehicle needs to be cared for and taken care of appropriately when the time comes. We'll all probably sell our electric cars and bikes and scooters, you know, as used, but... If we get rid of them or we trade them in or they wreck, we I, I'd, I'd like everybody to be conscious of the amount of uh, toxic waste that's in them, which is the most obvious when you see video of, you know, any brand name electric car burning to a crisp on the side of the road. Yeah. <laughs> when those batteries <laughs> catch, it's... Uh... It's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, they generate an enormous amount of heat. And guess what? They burn the plastic, which is itself toxic and puts out toxic smoke as well at a very, very, very high temperature, which is why fire departments themselves struggle to even put out the fires. So just be cautious of that. Uh, Be mindful of that. But this is not in any way to dissuade anybody from going electric. It's just another piece of the larger puzzle of how to take care of the environment. Got it. Dave, thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of
0: fun. And I personally am definitely looking forward to reading Climate Activism by Design when it comes out.
1: I appreciate it. Thanks for the time you gave me. I appreciate it. If people want to keep up with you or your work, where is the best place for them to do that? My website, uh, climate-activist.com, climateactivist.com. And it's growing now. I tend to blog a little bit on there, but as the book comes to the surface, uh, and is ready for pre-order, which will probably be six, nine months from now, uh, they'll see things on the website to, to let them know how to buy it. Cool. We will uh, link the website in the show
0: notes. Great. So if you're listening now, go check it out. Appreciate it. And that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. Thanks again to Dave for his time on this one and make sure to be on the lookout for his book, Climate Activism by Design, When It Hits Bookstores. We'll be back on Friday for some of those quick hits you know and love from us. Until then, make sure to follow on our socials at Planet Today Pod for clips from the show, an exclusive quick hit that I'm working on every week. For The Planet Today, I'm Matt Norden. See you on Friday.